Well, good morning, Grace Church. It's nice to be here with you again. I always enjoy coming up here. Uh, this is, I've lost track of how many times I've been able to be up here with you, but it is a privilege. And I am especially excited to be kicking off a new series, uh, a series that's called Dwell. And if you can see the logo up there, if you can read that fine print on the side, it actually it says to, that we are looking at a relational God from cover to cover in Scripture, from the beginning to the end. And this series is going to be about God's desire to dwell with his people. That that is something that you see from cover to cover in this book, that God has been pursuing people. He has desired to live with them, to be in relationship with them, and to dwell. And that is one of the themes that you can look at from Genesis to Revelation. And so we get to kick that off today. And uh, it's so refreshing to serve a God who actually wants to be in relationship with his people, that he's not just distant, he's not you know, bored with us or, or you know, just wanting to be worshiped but have no interaction. We have a God who wants to be with us. We sang about that this morning, that presence of God. Some versions of scripture actually refer this, to this as that God desires to tabernacle with us. That would be using an Old Testament phrase of when God tabernacled with the Israelites, when he was in their camp and in their midst. But if we were to say this in more modern day terms, we would say that God wants to pitch a tent and dwell with his people, that he wants to camp with us. He wants to be in our presence. And as we see who this God is, it's gonna help us to know how he interacts with us. It's gonna help us to know what our response is to him. And that is kind of where we're gonna to start today by looking at the God who desires to dwell. Uh, as the series continues on, we're gonna see a lot more about what he's done and how he wants us to interact with him. But today, we're gonna to be primarily focused on God and who he is to give us an idea of what he wants us to do and what values he has. So anytime you're going to start a series that takes you and traces a thread through the entirety of scripture, probably a good place to start would be in Genesis. That would probably be a good place to start. So that's where we're gonna start uh, this morning. We're gonna start in the beginning. And actually in Genesis 1.1, we are gonna focus on the first four words. We're not even gonna get to word five and beyond today. We're gonna focus on the first four words. Many of you probably know these words from memory, okay? That Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And then, of course, we do know, and in and, and subsequent weeks, you'll be able to see that we get to creation, uh, we get to rulership, we get to all of the different attributes of God and how he interacts with people. But before we get to that, what God's done we wanna see who he is. That in the beginning, God. And one of the unique aspects of the Christian faith is this God that we serve, he is one God who exists in three persons. And in theology, we call this the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity is a Christian doctrine. Sometimes it, it can be one of the most mysterious or the most misunderstood or perhaps even the most complicated ones. But the fact that God is Trinity actually reveals so much to us about who he is and how he acts. 
We sang a hymn at the end of worship today, and I'm actually going to reference another hymn this morning that you might be familiar with. There's a, a very famous hymn that speaks about God being Trinity. It's called Holy, Holy, Holy. It's one of the most well-known hymns in the English language. This hymn was inspired by the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed uh, in history was when a group of the church fathers got together and they were agreeing on who the person of God is, that they agreed that God was divine and they also agreed that God was the Trinity, that he was one God existing in three persons. And that agreement in church history inspired this hymn, Holy, 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 that's sung in countless churches every week. It's probably one of the most famous English hymns. And it ends with a familiar line that we probably are, have all heard, that it says, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. As familiar as this hymn is and as beloved as it is, do we understand this familiar line? Do we understand what it's talking about when it says God in three persons, blessed Trinity? What, what does this mean? Okay, yes, it's a challenging doctrine. And so sometimes in our Christian faith, we just kind of put this part of Christianity on the shelf that maybe it's a little bit of an afterthought, something we don't spend a lot of time on. Perhaps it's even looked at as a part of like, well, it's almost like advanced Christianity. It's like master's level Christianity or something to try to understand the Trinity. And there is a mystery to this. There is a little bit of one God existing in three persons that kind of, when we try to wrap our brains around that, it, it might make smoke come out of our ears. Uh, it can just kind of go, how do we explain this? But at its very core, this represents who our God is. And there are certain aspects of, this, of the Trinity that we can understand and that actually have a lot of application to our daily Christianity. You know, if you were to take a poll of evangelical Christians, this is actually done a couple years ago, and they asked a number of doctrinal questions, just some basics of the Christian faith. It, in some ways, was no surprise that there were some misconceptions about the Trinity. There were some different ideas out there that even among evangelicals, people that are saved or going to heaven, they, they actually have some wrong views of aspects of the Trinity. So let me just give you a couple of these statistics. Um, you don't have to raise your hand if you, you agree with them or not. Please don't do that. Uh, but just to give us an idea of where some of the thoughts about the Trinity are, in the evangelical church today, listen to these statistics. 38% of the people polled, uh, and this was done by Lyonnais Ministries, they're, they're a discipleship ministry based in France. 38% uh, of evangelicals polled say that Jesus is not God. That Jesus is not God. So that obviously comes against the doctrine of the Trinity because Jesus would be one of the, the persons of the Trinity. That actually comes against Jesus' own words, that he himself claimed to be God. That's nearly 40% of people polled that have a wrestle or a question with, is Jesus in fact God? 62% of those polled say that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person, a force. 
that it's just some mystical, mysterious thing that kind of comes in, maybe like a wind or a cloud, we're not really sure, but certainly not a person, it's, it's a force. 62% of those polled said that. I wonder if the evangelical church were being discipled more by Star Wars than we are the Bible. It's not use the force, Luke. It's an actual person of the Trinity. And this perhaps is the most shocking statistic. 78% of those polled said that God, the first thing he did was to create Jesus. That God created Jesus. That's almost 80%. If we were kind of representing that poll today, it would be like this section believes that Jesus wasn't created. The rest of you believe he was. Was God's first act to create Jesus? That, that's not a belief in an eternal Jesus. That's not a belief in a divine Jesus. So what do we do with this? Do we just kind of throw up our hands and say, it's a mystery, why should I bother diving into this? Should we just kind of be content to try to describe the Trinity with a number of you know, examples? I don't know if you have heard that the Trinity is like an egg, that you've got the whites, you've got the yolk, you've got the shell, three different parts, but still one egg. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. I mean, because if you drop that egg, you've got a broken God. So I don't know if we wanna go there. Uh, or maybe you've heard that the Trinity is kind of like the, the forms that H2O can take, that it's a liquid, it's a gas, uh, or it's a solid if it's frozen. And well, that kind of does it in some ways, but not totally. So is it any wonder that we have some misconceptions about the Trinity in the modern church? Is it any wonder we're, we're not even sure why this is important? Well, one of the books that I've read over the last couple of years that was very helpful on understanding, and not just understanding, actually really enjoying the Trinity. This is a book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Uh, and one of the greatest things about this book is it's short, okay? So if your eyes are already rolling back in your head because we're talking about the Trinity, uh, if you decide to take a jump into this book, at least it's short. So it's not gonna take you forever like most theological books. But Michael Reeves has some really interesting points and some of what he writes in this book I've drawn on this morning, but I wanna read this quote to you that he talks about the importance of the Trinity and how the, actually our view of the Trinity can affect every single area of our Christian life. Here's what Michael Reeves says. He says, we will see that the triune nature of this God, the, the three-in-one nature of this God affects everything from how we listen to music to how we pray it makes for happier marriages. Hey, that sounds good. Do we want happier marriages within the church? Absolutely. It makes for warmer dealings with others. Could our society and culture use some warmer dealings with others right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the Trinity actually reflects this and helps us to deal with people who think differently than we do. It, it, he says that the Trinity makes for better church life. It gives Christians assurance. It shapes their holiness and it transforms the very way that we look at the world around us. No exaggeration. The knowledge of this God turns our lives around. That's a very different perspective than this very mysterious, hard to understand. I don't know if I even wanna think about the Trinity he says it affects every area of our Christian lives. So my goal this morning is not to give you a big theological tree on the Trinity because you would all have your afternoon nap this morning 
if I did that. And then what would you do this afternoon? Uh, watch football probably. But what my goal is this morning is I just want us to enlarge our thinking about this God a little bit more and see why the fact that God is Trinity actually impacts our everyday lives. So if we go back to our verse, that we're looking at the first four words, in the beginning, God. And we know that after that fourth word, it says he created, so this is what he began to do. But before he began to do, who was God, who is God first and foremost? Before we see the rest of scripture play out, who is this God that we see appearing here in our text in the beginning? Who is he first and foremost? Well, God has a lot of attributes, a lot of things, but if, if he is primarily a creator, if we go to that fifth word in this verse and he's primarily a creator, well then what was he before he created? He was missing something, he was incomplete. He, he kind of needed creation to fulfill who he was. Or even if you go with those people who think that Jesus was created, which please don't do that, um, I don't think scripture says that. But even if you go there, there was at least a couple nanoseconds before God created Jesus. So he was incomplete until he did that. So it just seems kind of strange to serve a God that has to be fulfilled by something he does. That we basically completed God. Now, he is a creator, absolutely, but I don't think that's what he is first and foremost. Because there was a time a long time when he wasn't a creator yet. So what was he before he was a creator? Was he first and foremost a ruler, ruling over the world? Well, we know that there was obviously a time that the world didn't exist. So he wasn't ruling over the world at that point. And maybe he was ruling over the universes, but even there was some point before they even existed. So if God is first and foremost a ruler, he's kind of like this God who sets the rules, he puts things in order, he tells you how things work, and then if you mess that up, yes, this God will come and forgive you, he will let you off. He's almost like a divine police officer, a divine traffic cop, right? That he sets, you know, the rules are set, and this police officer enforces them, and if you really are fortunate and you break one of these rules and that police officer lets you off, Oh, I'm so grateful, right? But do you actually love the police officer that lets you off? Do you desire relationship with the police officer that lets you off? Or are you just simply grateful that you got out of jail free, so to speak? If our God is just simply, first and foremost, a ruler, that kind of falls short after a while. He's not just a divine traffic cop. He's gotta be something more. Yes, he eventually does rule, but that's not... First and foremost, how about grace? Grace Church, how about is God first and foremost grace? If you know anything about me, grace is probably my favorite topic to talk about. So I love the grace of God. Is God first and foremost grace? God would then require sin so that he could show grace, right? because grace came into the world in Genesis three after Adam and Eve sinned, but before that, there wasn't a need for grace. 
So does God need us to sin so that he can complete himself and be who he is? That sounds like a bit of a heretical teaching, doesn't it? I think the Apostle Paul might have something to say about that. Don't sin all the more so that grace abounds. No. Yes, God is gracious, but that came as a response to sin. So who is God first and foremost? Well, Michael Reeves in this book would suggest that before God was anything else, he always was a father. He always was a father. And being a father shows that he is walking in love and he is engaged in relationship. The son, because Jesus the son is also eternal, because he was not created, that means that if the father is eternal and the son is eternal, there was never a time when God the father was not a father. There was never a time when he was not expressing love towards his son and engaging in relationship with him. So yes, eventually God is a creator. He is a ruler. He is gracious. He's all the things that start with the word omni, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. But first and foremost, he is a father who is exercising love and relationship. So maybe a better question to ask is what was God doing before the fifth word in that 1-1 verse, before he created? What was he doing? Well, God was always showing love and he was always existing in relationship with the other members of the Trinity. We don't have this verse on the screen, but 1 John 4, 8 says that in his very essence, God is love. God is love. So if we're trying to get to the core of answering the question, who is God? God is love and God desires relationship. And everything that he does and that he asks and that he wants for his people flows out of that basic fundamental desire. That should be good news to us, Grace Church that God is love and he desires relationship because this means he wants that relationship with us. The Trinity tells us who God is. It shows us how he acts and it gives us a model for everything that follows in the Christian life once creation occurs. So we see that the Father is God. God, one God existing in three persons, the Father is God. We see that Jesus, the Son, is God, and that is shown in many places throughout Scripture. Perhaps, perhaps the most well-known verse is in John chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you continue to read in John chapter 1, it very clearly shows that this Word is referring to Jesus. So in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God... and We've got God the Father. We've got God the Son, always, eternally. Again, this might make smoke come out your ears because it's kind of hard to understand eternity. And then we also have the Holy Spirit being God. In Genesis 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 2, as creation is, is unfolding, we see that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit is also present at creation. 
in the beginning, God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is not just an impersonal force, like something out of Star Wars. He's the third person of the Trinity. All three of these persons are God, but yet they are distinct. They are different. They are unique. And there are a number of verses that show all three of the persons of the Trinity interacting, but perhaps the one that shows us the most clearly is in Matthew chapter three. So let me read that to you. Matthew chapter three, verses 16 and 17, and this is the account of the baptism of Jesus. Verse 16 of chapter three of Matthew says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. So we've got Jesus, the son, wrapped in humanity. So there's one person of the Trinity. He saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The Holy Spirit in the, appears in the form of a dove or somewhat like a dove descending to rest on Second member of the Trinity. Verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We have Father God expressing love and relationship and pleasure over his son. That in one account in time and space, we have the three unique, distinct members of the Trinity present, but yet they are all one God. One God, three persons. And what this also shows us is that the Trinity is at the same time unified and diverse. That there is unity in the Trinity because God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Spirit is God, but yet there is diversity, uniqueness, difference, because the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Are you following this? You're just completely intellectually understanding this, right? right. Uh, there is a little bit of okay. <laughs> that goes with when you talk about the Trinity. There, there's a, a, a well-known uh, graphic representation of this. Uh, I actually don't know where this originally came from, but you're trying to describe some of the indescribable. So I have this graphic, if you could put that up on the screen, uh, that is a picture of the uniqueness of the Trinity. I think we're getting that. Oh, we got it. Okay, it's just not where I can see it. Okay, great. So this represents just attempts to again visually represent what is a difficult thing, that you've got God at the center here. And coming out from who God is, it says the Father is God, the Spirit is God, and the Son is God. That they are unified in their godness. But there is also, as the different members of the Trinity connect, you can see the words is not. That the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. There is unity, one God, yet diversity, three different persons. Now you might be sitting there saying, what does this matter to me? Why is this important? How does this apply to my everyday life? So let's return to our first question. Who is God first and foremost? And what was he doing even before creation? 
Well, I've mentioned that God is love and God is in relationship. And so I wanna give you today two reasons why this actually matters to our lives. That it's not just a theological concept we're supposed to you know, sign if we say we agree to a doctrinal statement, but it actually impacts our lives. Here's the first reason. First reason why this matters is because we see that God has always been relational and he has always been functioning in love. There was never a time in the existence of God that he was not in relationship with another because the Trinity has always been present. And there was never a time when he has not been expressing love. Creation which came after this eternity of God existing before creation. Creation was a mere outflow of that love and of that desire for relationship that God created. And when he does, it reflects who he is and what he values. And you're gonna look into that a little bit more in the coming weeks. What we have is the picture of a God who is content who is at peace, who is fulfilled. God is not needy. God did not create the world because he was bored or because he was lonely or because he needed us to complete him. You know that famous movie scene that says, you complete me? Okay, God did not you know, say we need completion to the other members of the Trinity. He was content. He was fully satisfied in loving relationship And it was out of that that he said, let's add to this, not to complete us, but to replicate what we already have. You know, sometimes we hear people that when they're desiring of relationships, they look at, you know, a relationship status that maybe they don't have. And they kind of say, I need this, or I I desire this. You know, some people who are single say, I want to get married because that will kind of complete me or I wanna have kids, or I wanna have grandkids, or let's hope that the married people aren't saying, I wanna go back to being single to complete myself. But God is not like that, that he was not looking for other relationships because he was lacking. He was fulfilled where he was, but he opened that up because he wanted to. You know, if you think about a single person God that many other world religions would worship, a single person God is essentially self-serving. They're, they're looking to meet their own needs or, or be self-centered and worship then actually like it gives them something. They need it because there is no other relationship with the creation. God already had relationship. And so he's, we are not worshiping him to give him something he doesn't already have. We don't like to say it this way, but it's actually quite comforting when you think about God doesn't need us. He doesn't need our worship to complete him. He already is feeling very fulfilled in the love of the Trinity. He doesn't need our service, but he welcomes it. He desires it. He wants it. God creates us for relationship with him because he is relationship. That when we go on in Genesis 1 and we see God creating Adam and Eve and he desires relationship with them, it is a mere reflection of who he already is. He wants us to have relationship with him. God creates us also for relationship with others because he has relationship with others. 
probably talk about this in a few weeks too, but if you remember that when it was just God and Adam, God actually came to Adam and said, it is not good for you, Adam, to be alone. I will create someone like you. Because God knew what it was like to have a relationship with others and he wanted Adam to have that as well. So we're created for a relationship with him, with others, and we do know the message of the gospel is that when that relationship is broken through sin, Genesis chapter three, God's primary concern is to mend that broken relationship. So much in our Christian faith focuses on the understanding that God is a relational God and that God has always been expressing love and he invites us into that kind of a relationship. So that's the first reason why it matters. Second reason why this matters is because God shows that unity and diversity is actually a model that we are to follow. That is a model of who he is and he wants his people to reflect that. Think about how many different ways this shows up in what then God ends up creating. When he decides to create people, he creates men and women, okay? He makes them both in the image of God. Genesis chapter one says, in the image of God, he created them, male and female. There is equality in the image of God, yet male and female are different, aren't they? They are unique, they are diverse. So we have unity in the image of God and in the value, and we have diversity in the biological sexes. It's a reflection of who God is. Think about marriage. You know, it is, I was thinking, as I was preparing for this message, it struck me that three gods or three persons and one God is a bit of a mystery that makes us kind of go sideways. But we regularly talk about marriage as two distinct people coming together to become one. And we're like, yep, there are now one flesh. That is one flesh. So that mystery somehow for us is more understandable than the mystery of three gods, three persons being one God. It's yet again, a reflection of who God is, that we've got a unique, diverse male, a unique, diverse female coming together to be one flesh. Diversity and unity. This, is, this comes and it's modeled throughout all of creation. You know, one of the interesting things the Trinity and the way that God models unity and diversity, that should actually be incredible news for every single woman in the room. It's also good news for men. Don't worry about that, men. But if you look at most religions and most worldviews, generally the way that they have the narrative of how things got started, it always looks good for the man and it looks pretty bad for the woman. At best, Woman polluted man in many of those narratives. That's not biblical. Let me just make sure you're hearing that. These are the other religions. At best, woman was a step down. And some of the narratives of how women were created are actually really foul. If you look up some of these things, it'll, it's like not stuff you wanna be talking about in church on a Sunday morning. It's pretty foul. But what do we have in Christianity? Christianity starts off and it says, man and woman are equal that they are equal in the image of God. And yes, they're different, but here's the thing. Women didn't pollute men. In fact, women added something to men in the garden because God said, it is not good, Adam, for you to be alone. Here's a woman. The woman improved Adam's life. 
Women, you should probably say something here. Okay, this isn't even Mother's Day and you're getting some shout outs. We have equality in the relationship and marriage, equality in the image of God, unity in that, and we yet have diversity. That unity and diversity is such a model of life when you have with God. Think about the body of Christ. The body of Christ, every metaphor in scripture that defines the body of Christ, it's one body and many members, right? There's, a, there's an arm, there's a leg, there's a hand, it, but still one body. And that represents the spiritual gifts that we need all the gifts. That represents the various cultures and languages because we know that when we stand before the throne in heaven, every tribe and tongue is gonna be there, yet we are one people of God, amen? This should represent our churches. Our churches should be the most unified yet diverse places that we can find on this planet because it's a reflection of the God that we serve. Unity and diversity is under attack like always since, since creation because we've got people now moving and they wanna go to places where everybody looks like them, talks like them, thinks like them, votes like them, and does everything like them, right? That's not diversity, that's conformity. And if the church looks like unity and conformity, I struggle to see that that is a biblical representation of what God says the body of Christ is supposed to be. If we're looking exactly like everybody else, that's actually the sign of a cult, not a church. God is unified and diverse, and he wants that. Okay, of course we stand for truth. Of course we do all these things. We don't agree on let anything in, but there has to be different perspectives in our midst or we're not reflecting the body of Christ. It just got really quiet in here. I don't know if I'm coming back in five weeks, Ray. We'll see. Even just think about Abraham as he looked out towards the stars and God promised to make him one great nation. That nation is gonna reflect every tribe and tongue. It's gonna be a beautiful thing when we get to heaven and we see that happening. So two things, God is relational and he is love and he has always been those things and unity and diversity is a model and this really reflects the entire gospel message. God created out of love and a desire for a relationship. People sinned and broke that relationship. So what does God do? He promises to send his son to fix what was broken. So Jesus wraps himself in humanity, lives a human life, he dies, he rises again, and he does this to restore that lost relationship. Then God sends his spirit to dwell in our hearts so that he is with us every single place we go and he can have relationship with us on this broken planet. And one day in heaven, sin, death, and the enemy will be done away with and we will return to the relationship that we were created for. Relationship with God and relationship with one another. Can I hear an amen? amen? That's the gospel message. And it's a reflection of who God is. So we're going on a journey the next eight or so weeks where we're gonna look at God's desire to dwell with his people. And we started that journey today simply by looking at Four words. In the beginning, in the beginning, God. 
We're gonna go on to see what it comes after this in the other words of scripture, but we have to first see who this God is before we even have any understanding of what he's doing and what then he wants us to do. The God that we serve so clearly in scripture is a God of love and it's a God of relationship. You know, as I teach in a number of different Bible schools, inevitably someone will ask the question, so why did God do this anyway? Why did he create us? What is the planet for? Why are we here if everything is so bad? Why did God do that? And that's one of those slightly unanswerable Bible school questions that you could either try to sound really smart or you could say, I don't know. Or you could say, well, here's what we do know. I prefer the latter one. Here's what we do know. Why are we here? Why did God create us? We are here because God, out of the love that he already had for the Trinity, wanted to include us in that kind of a loving relationship, even if it meant the pain and the suffering that we would cause God and that would eventually cost his own son his life. He said, this is who I am and I want to include my people in this kind of a relationship. God created out of love and because he desires a relationship with us. And this is simply consistent with who he has been for all of eternity. So if God has done this, how do we respond? And that's something that we can think about this week is in light of serving a loving and a relational God, how should that impact my life? Do I reflect that in my interactions with others? Do I reflect that in my marriage? Do I reflect that in my own personal walk with the Lord that he desires relationship with me? Do I reciprocate that desire? That these simple truths can eventually begin to change everything in our lives. Don't we serve a great God? A great God that wants to include us in his loving relationship that he's had with the members of the Trinity for all eternity. If that doesn't cause us to worship, I don't know what will, because that is a God that is so much bigger than us. So I wanna close with the words of that famous hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And I just want us to focus on that final line. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Thank you, God, that you exist in three persons, that you are a Trinity, but yet you are still one God. And even though that's mysterious, even though sometimes that's hard to understand, God, we can see what you wanted us to learn and replicate in our lives. Thank you that you've always existed in love. Thank you that you have always engaged in relationship and that through your kindness, you have extended that loving relationship to us. God, may we not take that for granted. May we engage in that relationship on a new and deeper level every day. And may we invite others who don't yet have that relationship, may we invite them to come and experience the relationship with the eternally loving in relationship God. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Amen.